You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. From the fall of man in exile in the garden to the present day, the people of God have had to think about how to live well in a world mixed with and largely dominated by non-believers. Particularly, this has been a challenge with regard to politics. Should Christians withdraw from society, burning our bridges on our way out, and utterly unconcerned with whether or not the law of the land reflects our ethical principles, even expecting that it usually will not? Or should we fling ourselves into the life of the state unreservedly, working with all our might to bring politics under the sway of our religious beliefs? Should we identify those two opposing poles and, like good Aristotelians, strike some kind of middle ground? In Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion and Politics, Robert Benny writes, Authentic Christian faith brings politics down to earth where it belongs. That does not make it unimportant, for God has chosen to reign in another way in addition to his reign by the gospel in the hearts of individuals in the church. Though God's gift of salvation is the pearl of great price offered from above, vertically, as it were, to believing Christians, he also reigns horizontally through his law. In all those earthly agencies that preserve order and justice on earth, politics being a key one of those agencies. God's reign in the horizontal dimension does not bring salvation, but it does aim for as much order and justice as possible in a finite and fallen world. My name is Coyle Neal, and I'm an assistant professor of political science at Southwest Baptist University in Bolivar, Missouri. Joining me today to talk about this and related matters is Dr. Robert Benny, the Jordan Trexel Professor Emeritus and Research Associate at Roanoke College in Salem, Virginia. He has a BA from Midland Lutheran College and an MA and PhD from the University of Chicago with postgraduate study at Hamburg and Cambridge Universities. Lives in Salem, Virginia with his wife, Joanna, of 57 years, four kids and eight grandkids, and writes primarily on the relationship between the Christian tradition and society. Uh, Dr. Benny, welcome to Christian Humanist Profiles. Thank you. I'm uh, eager to get into conversation with you. Well, let's, uh, let's start where you, where you start in the book. Uh, what are some bad ways to think about religion and politics? And that's a broad question, of course. <laughs> I'll talk about two bad ways, and they break into further divisions, but uh, to uh, separate religion and politics is one bad way to think about religion and politics. The other bad way is to fuse religion and politics, <clears throat> and that's a dangerous one mainly to religion, but it can also be dangerous to society. So uh, the uh, separation of religion and society also breaks into, further into those uh, of a secular sort who don't want religion to affect political life, but it also has among them uh, people in religious traditions who think uh, politics is so contaminating that they don't want to uh, relate religion to politics from the religious side. So you have both those kind of separationism. You have several kind of fusionisms, too, most of which are kind of unintended and unconscious, but several of which are conscious and intended, and those are particularly dangerous to religion. Yeah, now, uh, when, when you say... Uh when you say separation is one of the bad ways of, of thinking about religion and politics, my, my first thought is, but isn't that what the First Amendment does, and, and haven't Christians sort of traditionally embraced that? Well, that was uh, continue, the continual uh, confusion of the separation of church and state with the separation of religion and politics was one of the, uh, the that continual confusion was one of the things that made me indignant enough to write the book. So I saw in so many op-ed pieces, so many <clears throat> TV programs, that uh, the separation of church and state means the separation of religion and politics. And nothing could be further from the truth. And that's really what got me to write the book, uh, because there's a secularist wave in America right now that's quite militant and, and open that uh, wants to equate the separation of church and state with the separation of religion and politics. So uh, uh, nothing could be further to come than truth because the founders all agreed that you had to have a vigorous religion in order to have ordered liberty, which was necessary for a real republic to, to, to endure. So Washington and Jefferson, uh, though not Orthodox Christians themselves, knew that the pillars of uh, religion and virtue were absolutely necessary for the st for the for uh, <clears throat> the republic to survive and they had they knew that religion was very very influential not only in the revolution but in the uh, pol politics of the day and uh, so so they they certainly didn't mean the separation of religion and politics 
though they meant very helpfully the separate the institutional separation of the church and the state and by that they meant there are, is no established church on the federal level as you know that that was the original meaning a lot of states had uh, established churches i think uh, massachusetts last till the 1830s but uh, what they meant is you didn't want to privilege any particular church because they knew from their European experience that that often uh, domesticates religion and makes it a formality and kind of disem- disembowels the spirit of religion. <clears throat> On the other hand, it uh, uh, connects the state too much with, with one religion and therefore the religious tests come into play. So they were vehemently against uh, the establishment of a church at the national level, but they welcomed the interaction of religion and politics. So uh, uh, that was one of the separations. And and in the book, I give a lot of examples of how this kind of secularist movement wants to uh, keep religious people out of the political process. And as I develop in the book, I finally uh, notice and argue that the separationism that they press forward is a selective separationism and at the bottom they don't want conservative people conservative religious people to right. intervene in political life they they get a free pass to the liberals in the religious community because the liberal agenda fits so well with their own secular progressivist uh, uh, agenda so uh, there, there's no criticism of liberals when they engage in politics uh, but uh, there is of conservatives, and they, they worry about the strength of conservative religion and political life. And uh, perhaps they're warranted in their worries because <clears throat> uh, the religious factor in political life is enormous, as was uh, re- revealed in the, the last election of Donald Trump, where something like 81 82% of evangelicals supported Trump. And one could argue that that alone is what carried Trump to victory, that kind of, and something like 60% of uh, white Catholics voted for Trump. So the religious factor is extremely important in political life, and the liberals worry, uh, and that's why they, uh, particularly the secularist liberals worry that that religion may have too much influence, and they they try to intimidate it, try to push it out of... uh, political life by privatizing it and in many ways intimidating Christians from coming forward with religious motivations in their political life. So it's it's a very lively conversation even to this this day. Which if, if you had told me that five years ago, I, I would have been a bit skeptical, uh, right? I mean, the, the idea that given the direction that it looked like the culture was moving, uh, with you know Obergefell versus Hodges, I guess that's not quite five years ago. Uh, with uh, uh, with the the decisions being made by the Obama administration, with the polls that made it look like the Democrats were going to have another term coming up. Uh, particularly, I, I shouldn't just say say Democrats. I should say with with the left looking like it is primarily ascendant in the country. Um, the idea that evangelical Christians would influence another election is uh, I, I don't know that I would have believed that. We seem to have gone in a different direction. Uh, is there something to this secularist charge that uh, conservatives, uh, particularly religious conservatives, are too fusionist, to use your term? Um, the fact that evangelicals did vote 80% for Trump, uh, is that maybe a sign that there is some fusion going on and, and we're thinking badly about politics, or is that just the nature of the, the political arena in America today? Well, I think there is some uh, reality to their worry. Not, not that they're not that I sympathize with them. I think uh, Christians themselves, of a conservative sort, have been alerted to the dangers of fusion. So, in the Southern Baptist Ethics and Liberty Commission, is that yeah, that's uh, Russell Moore's uh, the head of that. Now he's very reflective about this and uh, very reluctant to fuse. Uh, conservative or orthodox Christianity with <clears throat> political religion, po- political conservatism. And I think that's warranted because there are churches who do that kind of fusion, and that is kind of dangerous, kind of. It is dangerous to the transcendent claims of the gospel. 
because it tends to fuse a human work, conservative politics, with the gospel. Right. And I think there has to be a clear distance, clear distinction made. That's one of the great things about Lutheranism, because uh, Lutheranism um, maintains that the gospel is from above, as it were, and it, it has nothing to do with human work. Our salvation has nothing to do with our own human work, whereas politics is incredibly human and, and distorted and ambiguous. So one wants to make a sharp distinction between the gospel, the vertical, what I call the vertical, and the horizontal level of politics. So I think uh, reflective people like Russell Moore are, are, don't want that kind of fusion. But my hunch that that 82% of vote of the evangelicals was not because they thought uh, uh, Trump was some sort of Christian hero. <laughs> I think they were, they were quite aware that he's at best a casual Christian, and uh, his moral record is... is uh, not something to be admired, but I think uh, a great deal of that had to do with the uh, Supreme Court and great worries that uh, kind of a secular progressivism on the court would uh, privatize religion and actually intimidate and, and uh, maybe even oppress religious institutions, particularly church-related institutions. Uh, I'm not so worried about what's going to happen within the walls of a church, but what but the expression of one's Christianity in public for individuals, but also, but particularly for church-related institutions, like you're part of, uh, that can be uh, the target of a lot of uh, litigation and intimidation by the government, uh, fueled by j judicial decisions. So that's very worrisome, and I think that was in the back of the minds of, of most of those evangelicals and Catholics who voted for Trump. I would guess that's the main factor, but I'm not exactly sure. Right. Well, and, and let's uh, let's maybe talk a, a little bit about that that fusionism side of things. Then, so the the separation. I, I, I want to come back to that in, in a few minutes. But the uh, the uh, the the fusion that that uh, that danger is not something I grew up hearing about. Right. I, I I didn't. I was not raised hearing the real danger is that Christians will be too involved in government. Uh, so, so where is the danger of, of fusionism? Like, where where is that something that we should? Uh, wh why is that something we should think of as being a bad way to think about religion and politics? Well, uh, historically, there's been some horrific examples of fusion, where uh, the uh, faith is uh, way too closely connected with government, and it's easy to come up with those historical examples. For example, Russian Orthodoxy connected with the Tsar and and that kind of Tsarist politics. And when the Bolsheviks came along, uh, they saw that fusion and uh, attacked the church uh, vigorously. And the church really paid for that sort of fusion. The fusion made uh, the Russian Orthodoxy uh, way too involved with the government and uh, probably... Uh, alienated them from the serfs, from the lower classes, and so the gospel couldn't work its way in Russian society in a, very, in a, in a seriously impeded way. The same thing could, you could cite from the, the French Revolution. The French church was way too connected with the ancient regime. Uh, the Nazi uh, experience where Hitler tried to co-opt the churches into the German Nazi movement it, pretty successfully with the Lutherans. But, of course, there were resistors to that who re resisted a lot. And what happens, of course, is you distort Christianity into a political instrument and uh, in which there are huge uh, divisions then <clears throat> where uh, the gospel is no longer offered to people on the other side of the political division. So uh, it, it's a, a, a diminution, a, a limitation of the gospel to only people on the right side, but even more seriously, it claims uh, uh, salvatore and redemptive power for the political regime because it's so fused with the religious regime. And so the religion legitimates the politics and religionizes the politics. Uh, a horrendously dangerous combination in some historical circumstances, <clears throat> but even more dangerous, I think, to, to the faith where it uh, identifies itself with a small sliver of society 
and claims a redemptive significance for the politics which the religion is so closely connected to. <clears throat> now, in America, perhaps there's a kind of a, there was a, a kind of a, a, a mild fusion in, say, the 1950s and 60s after the Second World War. No, during, beginning with the Second World War, where religion, Christianity was used to, to motivate our resistance to the Nazis. And, of course, uh, there are some good reasons why you'd want to do that, because the Nazis were a genuinely pagan uh, uh, opposition to Christian Western civilization. Uh, you put Christian in, in quotation marks. But nevertheless, uh, uh, there was a fusion there of, of Christianity with the Western uh, allies. And then after the Second World War, there was this remarkable fusion of Christianity and America. So the, the famous sociologist Will Herberg uh, wrote the great book called uh, Protestant Catholic Jew, where he argued that to be a good American you meant you were a Protestant Catholic or a Jew, and to be a Protestant Catholic or Jew meant you were also a good American. So it was a kind of a, uh, both a, a wholesome and, and a great time to grow up. That's when I grew up. <clears throat> but there's some dangers of that, too, because then uh, Christianity becomes kind of absorbed in Americanism, <laughs> where uh, you don't really want that to happen either. And now, of course, we're at a time in history where that fusion is dissolving and dissolved, has already been dissolved. Some people call it a post-Christian society in America, and I'm not ready, quite ready to use that language. But certainly the um, uh, commanding heights of the culture, to use a kind of a Marxist phrase, <laughs> the commanding heights of the culture are dominated by what one could call secular progressive. And that uh, certainly um, has worked to uh, undermine any idea of, of Christian America. Right, and I, and certainly at least in part that that's because of the collapse of communism. Right, we don't have that joint enemy anymore that we have to work together against. Uh, once communism goes away, there there's no longer the need for an alliance between the secular culture and Christianity on on really on either side, uh, and you can you can start to have the split. With the uh, immer- uh, the coming of major uh, uh, Muslim immigrations into Western Europe. There seems to be an occasion for the Western Europeans, who are definitely post-Christian, to reclaim their Christian heritage. It's absolutely fascinating what's happening in France now with the rise not only of the right of Marie Le Pen, but the more mainstream conservative uh, candidate wants to talk about France's religious heritage, its Christian heritage. It's a Christian country. I mean, it's really fascinating how there's kind of a, a re recovery, uh, some signs of recovery of, of the Christian heritage of, of the Europeans. Uh, I don't know how far that will go, but certainly uh, that seems to be at play. Well, that's certainly something to keep an eye on. I, I will be interested to see if France ends up moving back in the state religion direction, although I, I'll be surprised also having read a little bit about the French Revolution. Um, Yes. Uh, before we move on to the good ways, I should ask anything to add about the bad ways or or this uh, fusion business. Well, I'm just uh, uh, reiterating that uh, uh, some of the bad ways are, are unintentional fusion, where uh, people of like uh, political sympathies and religious sympathies uh, kind of unintentionally fuse the two. <clears throat> so, for example, the liberal Protestant churches. If you look at their websites and what co- political causes they're involved in and what side they're on, it it's, looks like a, uh, a um, kind of religious legitimation of the Obama uh, uh, political agenda. And if you look at some conservative churches with their uh, political agendas, it's a, a like, like kind of unintentional fusion. Because if you would bring up, gosh, are you fusing religion and politics, Christianity and and your political, they would say, oh, of course not, we're not. But in fact, that's the way it works out unintentionally. So uh, I think it's always good for a religious tradition to have some pluralism of political voices so that that sort of uh, uh, an unintentional fusion doesn't uh, get so pervasive and uh, strong. And it's important to have uh, 
different political voices in a even in a conservative classical Christian tradition. You don't want everybody of the same political note. I think it's unwholesome, and and leads to that sort of confusion, uh, fusion, not confusion, fusion. Well, if if we're uh, if we're not supposed to separate politics and religion, and if we're not supposed to fuse them, uh, what are we supposed to do? Uh, what 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 are the good ways of, of thinking about religion and politics? Well, my uh, my little phrase to indicate what I think is the the wholesome way or the best way is what I call critical engagement, and that's. Uh, um, built upon the assumption that we should connect religion and politics. That is, if we believe that God is sovereign over all sectors of life and we're to be be obedient in all sectors of life, and we believe that Christianity has a comprehensive vision, then we have to connect our core Christian beliefs with our political life as we would have to with our cultural and economic life. But how we do that is, is the great challenge. And to separate them is one bad way, as we've already talked about, and to fuse them is a bad way. But nevertheless, we have to connect them. And I call that the wholesome or the better way I call critical engagement. And that's, uh, on the one hand, fully aware that from political ideology and political decisions, political programs, the distance, there's a large distance between your core Christian convictions and political decision. And uh, there's a whole bunch of steps one makes from moving from those core Christian convictions to a political decision. And it's a very complex and jagged trip that you have to make, but one where you're quite aware that Christians of goodwill and intelligence divide often, disagree often, as one takes those multiple steps from the core to political choice. So uh, what I mean by critical engagement is fully aware that there are many steps, that it's jagged and complex to go from core Christian convictions to political decision, yet that has to be made. And one makes it as best one can in terms of um, uh, careful arguments from the core to the the final uh, uh, political decision, uh, and, but but one must, as Luther said, you must sin boldly. You know that other Christians are going to take a, have a different take on this, uh, and that you can grant each other a good deal of slack. That is, you you can be remain Christian friends even though one comes to different political convictions. And one of the things I do in my book is try to honestly enumerate all those things that affect that trajectory from core to political decision, and to be honest about that, because a lot of those are non-religious factors that make a huge difference in how we finally come down politically, and uh, one has to be aware of those uh, and gain some humility from being quite aware of those uh, factors. For example, uh, your peer group, enormous influence on how you're going to vote politically, and if you're in an academic atmosphere, uh, there's enormous pressure to be liberal politically. And um, most of the conservatives I know in academia keep their heads down. <laughs> they don't, they don't, but they make their political decision, but they're, they're not open or public about it because uh, there's great pressure from the peer group to be liberal. And to break from the peer group is often very difficult. But that's only one factor. Many other factors, regional factors, political philosophical factors, what, what, political philosophy one finds most consistent with Christianity and liberals come down differently than conservatives in terms of political philosophy. So it's a very complex matter, yet one that has to be made. So that's what I call critical engagement. And I think it uh, emphasizes a certain level of humility and uh, yet uh, emphasize political courage to go ahead and connect. And, uh, and, and how do we go about, so if, if we identify these factors, uh, how, how do we go about uh, not, not just thinking well about them, but maybe maybe shaping them, uh, changing our views based on, you know, shifting these factors around? I mean, if, if, uh, if our peer groups are shaping our politics, is, is the extension of that, well, we ought to be changing our peer groups? I, I mean, what, what's sort of the practical application here? Well, I think we have to remain uh, uh, 
free and critical Christians. That is, we there, there's a certain kind of uh, uh, critical freedom that we have to exercise uh, as we try to make those connections. Yet we have to make those connections. Let me give you an example. Uh, there, there's the great Christian tradition with many, many ethical themes in it. Uh, and each Christian probably, and each religious tradition, each Christian tradition derives from the Bible certain key elements that it wants to uh, apply politically. But even at that step, Christians will disagree <clears throat> what's the most compelling uh, element in the Christian heritage that you want to apply politically. So it's a pretty complex matter, uh, even from the very from the get-go. Uh, in the book, I, I, I have three different principles that I think are relevant to politics that I, as a Christian, derive from the biblical heritage, but also from the Christian heritage in general. And one of those is, is that humans are precious and fallen. That is, uh, they're exalted, what I call exalted, using the language of Glenn Tinder, the political philosopher, because we're created in the image of God and we're redeemed by Christ. So humans are uh, infinitely important in the eyes of God, but yet we're fallen. And Tinder, for example, argues that that notion of Christian human dignity, human rights and human dignity, is the center of Western politics. And that is directly related to the Christian heritage. And out of that comes human rights, out of that comes democratic practice, out of that comes <clears throat> the consent of the governed. Those, all those sorts of notions come out of that central core Christian conviction. But at the same time, we know that Christians are uh, humans are fallen. And that adds a lot of complexity into one's political philosophy. A second principle is I want to distinguish sharply between the saving action of God in Christ and what happens politically. And I think that's an extremely important principle. And the third one I isolate is Christian service. That is, Christians are obligated to love their neighbors. And one of the ways we love our neighbors is through politics. So all three of those, I think, I derive from the Christian tradition. But I, I would guess you as a political scientist and a Christian might derive different principles. Certainly the commandments operate, they right. shall not kill. <clears throat> uh, but, but how those, how those uh, affect politics uh, is still a very complex matter. For I'm deeply involved and committed to the pro-life movement. But even when you get to particularly specific legislation, Christians will disagree even if they're strongly pro-life. So in Ohio, we just had the big difference of opinion between what was called the heartbeat legislation, that when the fetus has a heartbeat, you legislate that, a law, no more abortion, versus uh, 20 weeks. And John Kasich, you know, political, the, the governor and a serious Christian, opts for the uh, uh, 20 weeks one rather than the, the heartbeat one. And he's a serious Christian. Other Christians are on the other side. So it's a complex matter. But but uh, nevertheless, one the journey has to be made. That's what Christians have to do is make that complex journey from core political decision, fully aware of how complex it is. But I want to enter a caveat. By emphasizing the complexity and the jagged and complex movement, I don't mean that anything goes because one can be paralyzed by this, uh, this awareness of complexity so that when something really wicked comes along, one say, well, it's a complex matter. So when, uh, when Bonhoeffer saw where the Nazis were going, he saw it very early, and he said no. And he was, had the courage to, of his convictions to organize the confessing church as well as others involved. But he saw what was beyond the pale for Christians and that's a complex matter, too, but we have to pray for wisdom so that when that sort of wickedness does come, we don't say, well, it's a complex matter, we can fall on either side. That's when we have to say no. And uh, uh, that's a great challenge that Christians face to, to discern what is outside the bounds of this uh, of what is politically permissible. Well, and, and, and much of, you, you talk about how a lot of what, 
shapes us in this critical engagement and and helps us be able to make those sorts of decisions not just in the beyond the beyond the bounds areas but even in in day-to-day <coughs> excuse me day-to-day public life uh, is the institutional church right that the teaching of the the place that we go to Sundays that, that we're uh, a part of the body of all of the time uh, what are the the obligations of the institutional church uh, to public life, to shaping us as citizens? Uh, what should that look like, sort of, again, practically on the ground? Well, thank, thank you for that question. Uh, and that's why what I deal with at the uh, end of the book, uh, ways that the Christian tradition in its organized form affects politics. <clears throat> and I distinguish between direct and indirect ways. <clears throat> and the indirect ways are when churches are really churches in a powerful sense, they form the moral compass of people. And sometimes they do that so well and so powerfully that they have an enormous effect on politics and economics, even though they don't intend to. But because of the way they form people, uh, they have an enormous effect on political life and and, um, economic life. As you know, the famous study of Max Weber, the Protestant ethic and spirit of capitalism, traces how a certain kind of reformed Christianity uh, gave the legitimating impulse to early capitalism that made capitalism viable. Well, there are same arguments that democracy arises in England from dissenting Christian groups, in which the dissenting groups themselves didn't intend democracy in a political sense, but formed people in such a way that they had a democratic kind of ethos built into them, and that then translated into politics. And so the indirect way continues by the formation of people morally uh, by the churches. So, for example, it would be far more important, it seems to me, produce Christians who become senators and serious senators in a Christian way than to make a lot of public pronouncements uh, about politics by the churches. But so I talk about this indirect formation as extremely important uh, for political life. And I think you could, uh, uh, in the the last election, the fact that people were worried about religious liberty, serious Christians were worried about religious liberty, that had enormous political effect, I think. And even though the churches didn't explicitly teach that, lay people were quite aware of that because they wanted to be able to express their Christianity publicly, and there was great dangers to that public expression, they thought at least. So they voted for Trump, hoping that he would nominate a judiciary that was respectful of religious liberty, the expression of religious liberty. But then I talk about another kind of indirect way that I think is important, and that's where churches try to connect, for, uh, encourage lay people to connect their life on Sunday to their life on Monday. And sometimes that goes through preaching. A lot of churches preach on pro-life Sunday, for example. They don't tell people how to vote, but they talk about how important it is for Christians to respect nascent life. So preaching, but a lot of times in adult education. I just did a class on the church and politics at our church, and we went through the election. It was a wonderful experience because I was helping them and they were helping me connect their political life with their Christian convictions. And one of the salutary things that came out of that is because I talked about this critical engagement we talked about before, that there were Hillary voters in the class that could actually talk about why they voted for Hillary, as well as a lot of Trump people who talk about why they voted for Trump. And then a lot of people in between who thought they might vote for Trump, but they did it reluctantly. And then there were some people who said they couldn't vote at all, neither candidate. So what was really wholesome was was this uh, talk about critical engagement and how what values were being played out and what weren't. And uh, Christians could remain friends in spite of that kind of political disagreement. I was very happy with that. But at the same time, we were really making connections between Christian convictions and political life. So sometimes the church, it's very important for the church as an institution to help lay people make those connections and to be able to talk about them, sometimes even to be able to preach about them. <clears throat> but again, churches have to be very careful of fusion. You don't, you don't uh, fuse too closely with a political party. One uh, young woman I had in my class, 
said, Dr. Benny, I'm happy we're able to have political diversity in this group. We had about 50 in the group because she said, uh, I came, grew up in a church where you were of the devil if you were of a different political persuasion. And I wanted to make sure that that kind of uh, fusion didn't happen in my class. So, but, but then I do talk about direct ways. And one of the direct ways is where churches make political statements, social statements. And a lot of them have political implications. Perhaps the best example of that is the Catholic Church, with its great heritage of social statements or, or social doctrine. And most Protestant churches don't have uh, a body of social doctrine like the Catholics have. <clears throat> but the Catholics draw upon a store that changes over time slowly. It evolves, but nevertheless is very faithful to core Catholic teaching. And I think that's very valuable. And Protestants have to kind of uh, piggyback on that sometimes because we don't have those kind of uh, bodies of Christian doctrine so that when the Pope makes a statement, it's politically relevant, as well as when the Catholic bishops make a statement, it's politically relevant. Protestants have a lot more difficult time doing that for various reasons. But uh, I think that direct way, if the church uses that sparingly and is clear that it's drinking from its own wells, from the Bible and from Christian tradition, not from the political dispositions of its uh, hierarchy or the political dis uh, of its bureaucracy. So I talk about indirect and direct ways, and those I think that's important because uh, the direct ways should be used sparingly by churches. Uh, I worry about the danger of fusion if they get too involved politically. And then they are looked upon just as another political interest group. And boy, they lose their, lose their religious bite if they are reduced to a political interest group. Think of the trajectory of the National Council of Churches in America, which was once a major player, not only in religious affairs, but political affairs. It became so fused with liberalism that it's viewed as a political interest group and has shrunk to almost invisibility. <laughs> so there are huge dangers of this kind of fusion, and that's where you get the dangers in the direct involvement of the church in politics, which should be done reluctantly and uh, rarely. Uh, now, uh, any, any, anything else to add on uh, uh, direct versus indirect? I, I thought that chapter was excellent. I, I mean, the whole book is excellent, but I, I especially appreciated that distinction between, look, most of what we do is the regular teaching, and that shapes, you know, faithful Christians, but that also shapes good citizens. Uh, and, and then that need for pluralism, I, I think, is is something that you don't often hear, in, certainly not in evangelical circles, uh, but uh, really you don't hear that much anywhere. Um, certainly not uh, uh, that kind of, of uh, political pluralism in, in, in any case. Um, since this book has been published in and if you haven't been following this, that's that's fine. I can I can scrap the question. Uh, but since the book has been published, uh, we've we've had a movement, particularly on the right, uh, that has has said functionally, look, the the secular separationists, to, to use your your terms, have won. Uh, so it's it's time to you know with, withdraw to the monasteries once again. This is the the Benedict option that that Rod Dreher has been promoting. Um, do you do you have thoughts on that? Does that fit in anywhere with our, our good? Is that a good way of thinking about religion and politics, or a, or a bad way? Well, it, it's both good and bad. But let me say the good part. The good part is a refocusing on the formative qualities of the church that is forming strong Christians, dis discipling people, and you get a disciplined Christian. <clears throat> population. I mean, I think uh, the Lord is is weeding things out <laughs> these days. The casual Christians are going to become a lot less numerous in America. Uh, what was it, kind of up to 80% at one point or even further that consider themselves Christians, and now it's dwindled quite a bit, and that's because of the loss of casual Christians, I think. Um, the, the ones that right. Will Herberg talked about. But uh, at the same time, because of the pressures of the secular progressive militancy, I think uh, people are quite aware that uh, the Christians that remain Christians should be more disciplined and hearty and uh, have more uh, coherence 
and more a stronger formation. So that part is good. And, and there's a whole bunch of groups, radical mm-hmm. orthodoxy in England talks that way, and the Benedict Option and, and other groups do talk that way. It's influenced by Auerwas, that kind of... And he influences a lot of people within <coughs> mainstream Protestantism. <coughs> so that part's good. <coughs> Excuse me. But the, the, the withdrawal part, I think, is very bad. I think... Um, that Christians are obligated to work for the good of the society that they're in. And uh, that, doesn't, that means that we have a kind of a wisdom in our tradition that has to be shared and expressed in the society. So while uh, we have been beaten in many different ways, like uh, the judicial decision on gay marriage, for example, that is a huge setback. There was a lot of it would have been a lot more wholesome to let the states decide, I think, but the, the Supreme Court uh, did its work. But it seems to me that it's still worthwhile for Christians to uh, press for the recognition and honoring of the traditional notion of marriage, to do that politically in, in, and continue to do that, continue to press in the pro-life direction, continue to press for effective ways to help the poor, so uh, I think the withdrawal side of it is, is, um, is not is unfortunate. Now, I think uh, Dreyer on the Benedict option, when pressed, does, doesn't counsel withdrawal. He, he thinks uh, we need to focus more on the internal formation of people, and I agree with that. So uh, I, th- I continue to uh, <laughs> write op-ed pieces <laughs> about all sorts of issues, uh, from a Christian point of view, for example, physician assisted suicide. I got an essay on, on a website with pro con kinds of things, but there are all sorts of battles going on in America, and I don't think it's uh, even if we lose, I don't think it's time to uh, withdraw into a Christian enclave. If we really believe that God is sovereign uh, in politics and economic life. Uh, then we have to be obedient there, and we have to witness there. So it's not only uh, evangelism, but part of evangelism is is bringing the Christian worldview to bear, Christian insights to bear in the politics and economic life, and and to do that uh, uh, even at the risk of uh, of becoming unpopular and uh, uh, being in, uh, suppressed in some fashion or another. That's not happening yet, uh, and I hope it won't happen. But Christians have to overcome some of their aversions. Uh, they, they want to be popular or beloved. I think that, that those days are over. I think that uh, we have to be willing to take some licks, but I think we have to be willing to be, be public about our insights. And even when pressed, to uh, point to the Christian sources of our political opinions and our, our insights. So... Uh, uh, no uh, stronger internal formation, but remain engaged. And, and I think that's, uh, I, I, was, I was looking for a place to work this in, and I think this is a, a good place. This is not part of your, your book on politics, but uh, uh, directly related to that, what are perhaps some good and bad ways of thinking about religion and higher education? Uh, what, what, what is the future of Christians in academia? Well, uh, we could talk again about a formal church-related colleges, uh, and we could talk about the presence of individual Christians in public and secular colleges. That would be two different conversations. <laughs> and we actually talked a little bit about uh, the latter when we talked about Christians exercising their voice in the political sphere. It would be the same sort of thing in the, the public sphere, in public education, or private education that is secular. And, of course, a lot of that does go on. So, for example, at the University of Virginia, you will get uh, a number of uh, outspoken Christians, uh, James Davison Hunter, for example, and uh, that whole Institute on Religion and Culture that's at UVA, that's remarkable at a public institution. And so it's Christians banding together at some public institutions and making quite an intellectual witness and so we have many Christian voices from public institutions. We had uh, a woman here at the college, at Roanoke College from North, uh, North Carolina, uh, University of North Carolina, uh, Molly Wortham, 
who studies evangelicals, and uh, she's pretty explicit about her Christian convictions in the history department there. So that's extremely important uh, to exercise the Christian voice, uh, but that has to be done in a sophisticated manner. You know, it can't be asking for special privileges because you're Christian. Uh, they're not going to give that to you. You have to have a powerful argument based upon Christian foundations uh, to make your case. So uh, that's that's a whole area. And you and I are in church-related institutions. Yours probably more robust, uh, robustly connected to the Baptist heritage uh, than mine to the Lutheran heritage. <clears throat> but nevertheless, uh, uh, there, that's a whole field of inquiry, how church-related institutions keep their faith, uh, keep, keep the soul alive in their, their lives. And uh, to summarize uh, a long argument, uh, why I would say uh, church-related institutions, the Christian colleges and universities, have to be clear about their mission. And they have to state that clearly and uh, connect uh, their Christian foundations in their mission statement. And part of that mission statement has to engage, has to point to an engagement of faith and learning. That is uh, the, the dialogue between Christian wisdom and secular fields. And that has to be part of their Christian mission, not just put the Christianity and the co-curricular side of things into the ethos. Into the, uh, that's important, but that isn't, won't carry the day. The main purpose of a Christian college is intellectual and educational, and that's where the Christianity has to be engaged, and it has to be done in a sophisticated and persuasive way. And uh, so uh, you have to have a very clear sense of mission with, with faith, learn, engagement, part of that mission. And then you have to have the courage to hire for mission. And that's where a lot of colleges and universities are secularized because they don't have the courage uh, by the dean and by the president to make sure that you get uh, believing Christians who want to engage in faith, learning, engagement or at least non-Christians who are very supportive of the Christian mission of the college and will not be embarrassed by that or will not chafe under it and immediately start criticizing uh, the mission of the college. So uh, that's been the major failure of how uh, Christian organizations, Christian colleges and universities have lost their soul is by not being clear about their mission and not having the courage to hire according to the mission. Probably underlying the whole thing is the loss of confidence and faith in the Christian intellectual tradition and in a lot of liberal Protestant denominations you no longer have that conviction that the Christian intellectual tradition is worthy of public relevance in the college or university. So as you know all of the almost all the elite private institutions were founded by churches and somewhere along the way, they no longer believe that the Christian wisdom that they inherited was relevant to their public life as an institution. And so it was marginalized, and oddly enough, not maybe not so oddly, those, uh, those institutions often become hostile uh, to the very Christian tradition that birthed them. So it's a tricky business, and... Yeah, on, on the left, you tend to lose the Christian side of the intellectual tradition, and on the right, you tend to lose the intellectual side. Well, uh, thank you. Thank you for off-roading with me there a little bit. I, I know you've got a book on Christian higher education that's been published, and you've got another one coming out. Uh, so I, uh, I just wanted to, uh, uh, wanted to give you a chance to off-road on that. So uh, back on politics, uh, in addition to your book, uh, what other books ought Christians to be reading to help them think well? Well, uh, I mentioned the, the Glenn Tinder, a wonderful Christian author, who has a couple of uh, standard texts in political science, political philosophy. Uh, he has a, the, the uh, a wonderful book on, on uh, the Christian meaning of, of Western politics or something. Let's see, I forget what the title is directly. Uh, uh, books by Glenn Tinder, I think, are really important because he's tried to think through in a careful way the relation of the 
core Christian heritage and values and political life. And as a political philosopher, I think uh, uh, I've enjoyed his work a good deal. Well, as always on the uh, Christian Humanist Profiles shows, it is our practice to give the last word to the guest. Uh, so, Dr. Benet, uh, please uh, share with us what you think we most need to know about this subject. Well, uh, I think uh, the theologian Paul Tillich uh, argued that uh, politics, politics is dependent on culture, but culture is finally dependent on religion. And in the West, I think the fact that we've uh, flourished politically is uh, dependent upon uh, uh, the vigor of religion, uh, of the Christian heritage of the West. And I worry very deeply about that Christian heritage, particularly in Europe, uh, but also in America. And there's all this talk about post-Christian societies. <clears throat> I'm not ready to give up on America yet, partly because of the wisdom of the founders in uh, uh, the separation of church and state and the guarantee of religious expression of, of religion, free expression of religion. So, uh, but I'm worried about the decay of the culture and the loss of the kind of formation, formative past capacities that allow us to be a republic, to be a, a stable polity. So I um, long for uh, a, a renewal of Christianity in America and I pray daily for that kind of renewal uh, because I think we're in a, uh, a real contest for the, the cultural foundations for our political life. And uh, they're frayed badly. And uh, the emergence of uh, this electronic culture is worrisome on the one hand and perhaps promising on the other hand. I don't have a clue about how this renewal is going to go on. But I do know that American history is a story of revival. And I pray every day for that revival because it seems to me that the, a real wholesome connection between religion and politics depends upon a populace that has been formed deeply in virtue by a religious tradition. So uh, there we are, uh, hoping for renewal. Uh, without great despair at this point, but uh, great hopefulness that it can happen. Well, thank you again for joining us here on Christian Humanist Profiles, and thank you listeners for joining us as well. If you have comments or questions, please feel free to post them on the show notes at christianhumanist.com, send an email to thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or comment on the Facebook page. Be sure to pick up a copy of Good and Bad Ways to Think About Religion and Politics from Erdman's. Christian Humanist Profiles is a program on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Filippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. Please do be listening for the next episode of Christian Humanist Profiles.